The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone and welcome to another episode of Cut Across the Airwaves, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news, cut discussions on the entertainment industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host. Cut with me is a guy who would be fat if he didn't have me to do this podcast with. My co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico and welcome to Across the Airwaves. On this week's episode, we have a shorter schedule as some of our shows have already reached their mid-season finales. So this week we have our in-depth discussions on Once Upon a Time with Andy and Dan. Then Dan and I come back for all Almost Human, and then Sleepy Hollow's mid-season finale, and our sitcom section including Modern Family and The Big Bang Theory. Then we're going to dive right into the rundown section with our thoughts on Homeland, Mob City, The Tomorrow People, Grimm, and maybe even more. But before we get into all of that, we've got everyone's favorite section with some big movie news. Cause that's News with Nico. <laughs> The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog, earned second highest December showing ever after midnight screenings. Loyal fans stayed up late and showed their support for The Hobbit, The Desolation of Smog by attending midnight screenings across the United States. According to box office estimates, Peter Jackson's latest flick earned an impressive $8.8 million in its midnight showings alone. The total makes it the second highest December showing ever, The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey, holds the top spot after earning more than $13 million through midnight showings in 2012. Despite lower ticket sales than its predecessor, Martin Freeman, Benedict Cumberbatch, Ian McClellan, and the rest of the talented cast shouldn't be the least bit concerned. The sequel is still expected to make somewhere close to $84 million, similar to the first movie's opening weekend. In addition, many critics insist the second film is even better than the first. In fact, the finals for the weekend ended up just short of last year's first installment, with a total of $73,675 thousand dollars in the opening weekend well there was also a lot of snow around the u.s over the weekend that is true and so i think a lot of the weather kept people in it did with me as well as being sick but yeah yeah we were unable to do the midnight showing like we did the the previous year just because of work schedules this year so we ended up catching it saturday yeah and it, but it's a lot of fun i haven't got there yet i want to yeah we enjoyed it and i i was sick for part of it so like i still enjoyed it even being sick so that means it's got to be pretty good i might do a double showing of anchorman and this that's that sounds like a plan Early title for the Terminator reboot is Terminator Genesis. We just heard last week that a new Terminator TV show is in the works, which will tie into the Terminator reboot movie. And now it looks like the film has an early title too, Terminator Genesis. Production Weekly has the word on the the title, which could certainly change at some point as the film is just in the pre-production phase. And things are so early, in fact, that director Alan Taylor, who did Thor The Dark World, has been wildly, wildly reported to be working on casting the film, but he hasn't even been officially confirmed as the director yet. So really, a lot of stuff could change about this, but still, it's nice to see that it's got a new title. And your next article kind of backs up that theory a little bit. Exactly. I think people are saying it. Yeah. 
Game of Thrones, Amelia Clark cast as Sarah Connor in the Terminator Genesis movie. The Mother of Dragons is also the mother of mankind's future savior. Game of Thrones, Amelia Clark has won the role of Sarah Connor in Terminator Genesis. Clark, who had been vying for the role with short terms Brie Larson, was cast following a screen test. Jason Clark from Zero Dark Thirty was recently cast as Sarah's revolutionary son, John Connor. It's interesting to note that Terminator Genesis will be directed by officially now Alan Taylor, who has directed Amelia Clark on Game of Thrones. That HBO series, of course, also stars Lena Headey, who played Sarah in Terminator The Sarah Connor Chronicles. The filmmakers will now cast the other male lead role of Kyle Reese, with Variety saying the three frontrunners are Garrett Hudlund from Tron Legacy, Nicholas Holt from X-Men First Class, and Boyd Holbrook from The Host. Arnold Schwarzenegger is also set to return to the franchise that made him an A-list star, according to Variety. Terminator Genesis opens July 1st, 2015. Whoa. So another big movie for 2015. Yeah, yet another one for 2015, exactly. Star Wars, Terminator, Justice League, and Navy Avengers. Yep. Go, well, it's it's Batman Superman, I should say. Right. <laughs> oh, man, this is nuts. Camelia Clark as uh, Sarah Connor, kind of badass. I, I'm, I'm excited about this. I think this is some of the biggest news we've had in a while about casting, and that's going to be fun. Yeah, Michael was unsure, but trust me. Well, that's because he hasn't seen Game of Thrones. Right. If he'd seen Game of Thrones, he'd understand yeah. Khaleesi is awesome. Yeah, and could go toe-to-toe with Lena Headley, so yeah. we're, we're, we're covered here. The Knights of Badassdom to begin marching in February. I'm not sure how you feel about this one, but for better or worse, Knights of Badassdom is getting a release this February. Note that this will be a producer's version and not director Joe Lynch's cut, hence uh. why I'm not sure how I feel about it. Ryan Quarton, Steve Zahn, Summer Glau, and Peter Dinklage star in Knights of Badassdom, available on demand and digitally February 11th. Beginning January 21st, you can bring the film to your city by requesting it via Tug. For a synopsis and more information about how to get the film in your local theaters, follow the link in our ACC feed. And if you guys don't remember, this was a LARP movie that was supposed to come out years ago Yeah, with like all the awesome geeky actors that are out there, and it went through development hell. Yeah. The producers took over, and it's a mess. Yeah, Joe Lynch submitted a cut that was widely regarded as just awesome and the studio shelved it for I don't remember the original reason and then a new producer came in as the studio was going through financial issues and put together a new cut that was shorter and they figured it would get out and be able to sell better then that producer's cut was shelved and now it is finally being revitalized and redistributed or distributed for the first time now now, and it's going to come out February 11th. After being advertised at Comic-Con like three years ago. Yeah, <laughs> and the clips and stuff that we saw at Comic-Con three years ago looked awesome. The trailer still looks pretty good. A lot of it is using some of the footage that Joe Lynch put out as his sort of sizzle reel at Comic-Con, and you know they're trying to sell it off of that, but Lynch has distanced himself from this film, saying, how can I support a film that isn't mine? It, it's all stuff I shot, but not cut together the way I envision the film it doesn't even tell the same story he says or he said i don't know if it still tells the same story so it's going to be interesting i i'm a I'm little bit upset about that but i still really want to see this film yeah. so i'll probably still watch it on demand all right then
And finally, Doctor Who watched the first full-length trailer for this year's Christmas special. It's been a few weeks since our brains simultaneously exploded when we celebrated Doctor Who's 50th anniversary special as an entire planet. Today, I have a gift for you in the form of the new full-length trailer for this year's Doctor Who Christmas special, The Time of the Doctor. For that trailer, click on the link in your ACC feed right now. And we will be covering that episode after it airs on Christmas. Yep. Um, shortly after Christmas. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right. Well, we're going to bring Andy in to discuss the Once Upon a Time episode, The New Neverland. The residents of Storybrooke are overjoyed upon the return of Henry and our heroes from Neverland, but unbeknownst to them, a plan is secretly being put into place by a well-hidden plan that will shake up the very lives of the town's, townspeople. Meanwhile, in the fairy tale land that was, Snow White and Prince Charming's honeymoon turns out to be anything but romantic when they go in search of a mythical being that could stop Regina cold in her tracks. Ooh. Ooh. Well, first off, this was a really interesting episode, but you, you're going to hear that there is some concern in our voices at the end of this discussion by me and Dan. About the, fir- the future, yes. About the future, indeed. Yeah. And uh, first off, I think the whole Henry being Pan's body and Pan being Henry's body, I think that was great. I love seeing Gilmore getting to play Pan and uh, Cape. Yeah, he was to- great as a villain. Yeah, like his eyes, they he, he did the eyes perfectly. And that smirk he had was great, too. But he, the thing that was bothering was that bothering me was that whenever he was trying to really talk like Pan, he was kind of whispering in a way. Like he was like, "Yeah, Colonel Screeching his doors, first doors," and um, it was it, it was fine, but it did. It it, it it didn't go unnoticed. And Kay did a great job playing Henry, like because because the fir- for the first time we actually got to see him be a good boy. <laughs> yeah. So that was fun. And throwing a bit of humor too, which was fun. Please don't not the face. <laughs> yes. Because that is a typical Henry thing. That's a typical thing that Henry would say. And we're talking about the, when they were about to confront Henry in you know Pan in Henry's body. And um, Pat, and Henry tells uh, Rumple that okay, if you need to like sh- uh, fi- shoot a fireball at him or something, please don't do it to the face. <laughs> well, we we started calling Pan Henry at my house, um, Pank, because oh. my sister calls Henry Hank Kank, and so now she's calling him Pank. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. It's there was there's been so many confusing names throughout like that this week and so on. But but I I think it was fun. I think it really worked, and it was good to see Gilmore getting to flesh out more of his action shots because usually we just get to see him being a good boy. So now we get yeah. to see a little more of darkness in him. And then we have the the flashback aspect with Snow White and Charming. Look, if they want to do a mini show about these two characters in in their flashback story stories i would be so down with that because i like the avengers and i like that they went after medusa it she didn't like she yeah she the effects were good she looked creepy but like i could see like a mini show like for five episodes 20 minutes each them going on an adventure or something or like one of those web show things like blood rush during arrow yeah but more than three minutes though yeah i agree and uh, although it would be nice to see Felicity Smoke in uh, the Enchanted Forest, and um, sorry, wrong crossover. Uh, it's okay. But yeah, it, it it's it's nice. It's kind of interesting. They're, they've been going back a lot to the first couple episodes of season one, like in their flashbacks, because we get to see the, you know, the scenes after that. Uh, we get to see scenes in the from the pilot when Regina is com- confronting uh, the couple on their wedding and so on. And like, it's fine, but okay. 
Well, I thought it was going to get to the point where they were going to reveal that Pan was after the Medusa head. And that's what he was looking for in the vault. Yeah, the only thing that this element played in with the present was uh, Charming's whole thing about moments. Right. But other than that, there was not a lot of connections. No, but it was a great scene for him to have with Emma, though. Yeah. Later on in the episode. Because he never gets to be like the dad that he is. Right. So that was cool. That was really That was cool. a very Jonathan Kent moment for him. Maybe for those he, of you that are maybe, Smallville fans. Maybe he, he was watching a couple of episodes of Smallville when he got back. Right, exactly. And we got to see the red, red leather jacket again on Emma. That was cool. Yeah. Then let's to our last discussion point, which is the whole arc with all the adults and you know how them confronting, trying to confront Pan and so on. I think that the whole Emma and Neil thing... Sure, writers, go ahead. Try to postpone as long as you want to, but I don't see Hook and Emma being the end game at all. No. He's gonna go away soon, I think, like in next season or something. Yeah, he's gonna run off with Tinkerbell. There you go. Oh lord, who would have <laughs> ever imagined that seeing the Disney movie or the the movie Hook with um, Julia Rob- Julia Roberts and Dustin Hoffman and yeah, Robin Williams. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And um, it was sad that the Blue Fairy died because I was kind of hoping to see the storyline between Tinkerbell and and her, and but yeah, she went bye-bye yeah she bit the dust (laughs) no she lost her shadow no i don't know and um our ariel finds eric yeah that was fast quick yeah i thought they were gonna drag out that plot line a little longer yeah he was still bored and he was still just as boring as um his first episode as it was in the first episode yep maybe eric was just doomed to be a boring character like in any incarnation yeah i don't know what she sees in the guy but okay Exactly, and um, I like the the thing that that was so sad in this episode was Regina because the thing is that any every time any time when she is about to get closer to Henry, like it's always like a fake situation. It's it's not real. It's an imposter. It's it's lies. And I'm like, oh my god, can I, like and you and you blame her for being evil? Look what you're doing to this poor woman. I agree. And but then again, Henry was happy to see her after he got out of the box and stuff. That was a good moment. Indeed. Yeah. And like he's saying, him saying, you know, I still, I do still need you. So I felt that was a good moment saying, okay, you know, she's not going to get, you know, beat up on as much from here on out. Exactly. I think, he, yeah, exactly. That was a good moment. And now the last point, which is where it kind of makes us, us concerned. So Pat, Henry Pan is trying, is about to unleash the curse again. First yes. off, boy, you need, you need a couple of ingredients. So don't be so cocky by being like, oh, oh I'm going to make this a new Netherlands. Yeah, you're, uh, you're, it's a long way to go. You, you need to kill somebody. And could this mean that Felix is about to die? Maybe. That's I what I, I thought he was going to stab him right at the end of the episode. And be like, believe, believe you're dead. I think it's going to be Rumpelstiltskin still, though. No comment. I don't want that to happen. Uh, <laughs> but it, I'm not sure how I feel about it because according to Henry, uh, Henry Pan, it seems that if he unleashes the curse, everyone will forget everything again. Yes. But then there's this speculation that they will go back to the Enchanted Forest. That, that story would have never existed because it's uncursed right now. That would be. It would be better if they went back to the Enchanted Forest. Because then you wouldn't do away with all the character development you've done for the past three years. <laughs> yeah, and I, like, I really don't want to get back into the second half of the season having... To them... start from square one again? Yeah, but and, like seeing it's getting resolved in like two episodes, because that's that's what they would do. They would not put, drag 11 episodes out with them not remembering anything until the season finale. I don't know. I haven't put it past this show yet. <sighs> yeah, it's... They did very good with the Neverland thing, making that a condensed, very focused plotline. Now I feel like they want to spiral it out of control again. Yeah, and it's just like... 
times like this when I, I wish that Once Upon a Time was like Teen Wolf only had 12 episodes per season and so they could just have this one arc so that this season could right. be done because I would be fine with them starting season 4 with a total new arc with just 11 episodes or 12 episodes yeah this is a very like make it or break it episode again for Once Upon a Time and they need to stop having these by this point it, I'm just really like I'm gonna look. I'm me and Dan. We're t- totally gonna watch the finale. You know, the mid-season finale right. on Sunday. But we, I'm, I am really concerned what yes. they're setting up. Will will everything be concluded at this point? Because they have been there's there have been rumors that this arc will wrap up in episode eleven, and the next half it's gonna kind of be like its own season. Well, if you're gonna wrap it up, I feel like you need to put an end to the pan story yeah and I, at this point like, you can't send him back to neverland and have neverland being you know re- reborn like i i think it's i think he's gonna die well i think the strongest episode this season the strongest story this season we've had was the ariel episode so i think that's where they should go for the next story I think the door is open for that with Ursula, especially. Yeah, but overall, this was a really good episode. It's def, it's definitely heat, getting things heated up for the mid-season finale. I'm concerned, not in a bad, in a good and a bad way, because you know, we don't know what's gonna happen. We have no idea. Like the trailer looks concerning to me. Yes. And like. And hopefully that's just to get us excited to watch the show. Exactly, and I because here's the thing: they've been so good this whole season so far. And I season two was fine, but it had major issues, and I don't want to go back to that. I think this is a case of we should worry when we get there, Andy. Yeah. Okay. So let's sit through next week's episode, tear it off like a band-aid, and hopefully it won't be that painful. Yeah, so guys, make sure to join uh, join us for our discussion on the Mrs. Finale going home. All right, thanks, Andy, for joining us. Great discussion as usual. Can't wait to see what goes down for the show, get its mid-season finale. All right, so now we're going to move on to talking about a show that just keeps getting better as it goes and seems to be blowing our minds with its futuristic technology, because that's almost human, with the episode Blood Brothers. Detective Kennex and Dorian are assigned as protection for the sole remaining witness to a high-profile murder, while Captain Molinato deals with the case's defendant. This week's Almost Human started out with a hilarious opening, where Kennex became impatient, waiting for Dorian and barged into the synthetics locker room to discover that the newer model robots look like life-size Ken dolls when naked. However, to my relief, to Michael Ely's dignity, the writers were quick to reveal that Dorian was similar to us under the hood, because he was also disturbed by the synthetics' naked appearance to the point that he began to demand new living arrangements. Unfortunately, Cunnix went and made things more awkward by asking Dorian what he does with his parts. But thankfully, this is as far as it went, because I thought the mystery was going to be resolved by Ethan Avery, the murderer in court and prison, dropping trowel to reveal he was a synthetic, while the real Avery was still walking free. Nico, did you get a laugh out of this opening scene? God, did it set up the possibility the murderer was using a synthetic to be in two places at once? Or did you feel that was like kind of too out there or goofy like I did? Yeah, Dan, I did get a pretty good laugh out of this opening scene and was wondering just how anatomically correct these synthetics were. And it's good to know, once again, there is a significant difference between the Dorian DRN model and the newest, more robotic models. I wouldn't say that I was on board with the murderer using a synthetic lookalike to be at two places at once because my mind instantly went to clone 
clones rather than synthetic. I've seen enough sci-fi that either of these scenarios would have been feasible for me and I would have bought into it. And I could have seen them going either way, but I'm actually glad they went clone instead of synthetic lookalike. That would have been too close to maybe the synthetics using real human skin story we already saw that I'm glad they kind of went completely different. So like I see what you're saying that 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 made a lot of sense that it could have been a synthetic that was doing his jail time and they swapped him somehow at some yes. point but i i like that it was it was something different this time yeah, I think that's a good call to make it different than that first story they did. The other thing is, they kind of threw me off a little bit when they said, was it that cloning's illegal? Yeah. Or there was no way he could have done that. So they did kind of throw me off the trail a little bit. That's why my brain went to this for a little while. Yeah, once they said cloning was illegal, though, it kind of made me think that yeah. even more just because it made me think, oh, this guy's, uh, you know, a genius. So he some found, somehow found a way to clone people that's undetectable. Yeah, I agree. And you know, with this cloning, I thought it was fascinating how they added this layer to the clone characters that even after years of being tortured by their original host, they still wanted to help him. Um, they, they wanted to go way out of their way to save their host because they viewed it as protecting themselves. So I guess, I guess the best way to say it is they viewed each other as one. Kind of one was hurting. They had to help each other, I guess. So Nico, kind of what did you think of this cloning twist added to this episode? Was it as mind-blowing as some of the other sci-fi surprises J.H. Wyman has thrown our way in the past on Fringe? Dan, as I said, I was really glad they went the cloning route, and I do think it was a good call and exactly what we needed on the show. We've already said that we thought it would have been too repetitive if they'd gone with the synthetics again being the bad guys, or the guy using a synthetic to take his place in jail or something like that. Now, I'm a little confused with something you said about torture. I'm, I'm not sure why you said that uh, the clones were tortured by Ethan Avery. I, I, I didn't get that out of this story at all. I, I felt like the clones saw themselves and the original Ethan as family. I don't remember anything about torture or mistreatment of the clones. Maybe I missed something? Can you enlighten me on that? I remember um, Stahl saying a line to them when she was captured about saying that he didn't view them as family. She was trying to convince them that. And I thought she had dropped a line about saying, I don't see why this guy's family when he's tortured you since your existence, since you've come into existence. Okay, I Maybe didn't I catch that. Maybe I misheard the line wrong. That's what I thought she had said. Okay. That's where I got that from. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get that at all in my in my viewing, but okay. maybe I missed it, like I said. But, like, I know she was trying to convince them that he didn't care about them and maybe was saying that, you know, keeping them hidden and something, you know, that keeping them hidden from the world and stuff like that. And maybe that was where the mistreatment came from, and I just didn't put it together. Okay. Yeah, that's 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 where I got it from. Okay. Um, I, the main point I wanted to get out of that was that how they all viewed themselves as the same person. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, I liked that they were, even though they were essentially genetically the same person, they almost treated it more like they were brothers than, yeah. and, and, and they were a family. And I liked that idea and I, I'm almost sad that they were taken out in this one episode so we didn't get more development you know God we nice. always love we always love getting more development on characters and that could have been a lot of fun well the main guy is still alive so right there could be more clones out there we don't know it's possible <laughs> wouldn't that be just what J.H. Wyman would do you know yeah we thought we got them all but nope because <laughs> some people don't like it when they send in the clones so you know right it depends now, with these plot lines where there's 
you know, investigative team, and they've got to prove how a murderer killed someone from inside a prison. The bad guy normally spends the episode in prison taunting the main character, but Almost Human, I liked how they took a different approach to this, by having Avery taunt the captain. And on most police procedure shows, the stuff Avery called her out about regarding being alone would have just been left open, under the pretense that that's just life as a police officer. Got law and order has a tendency to do this. It always ends on this really depressing note. And that's what I thought they were going for here. But J.H. Wyman's team of writers understand TV can be most rewarding when it helps us escape reality with a happy ending. And that's really what we got at the end of this episode. Because the district attorney acknowledged the captain for helping him win his case. So, Nico, did you appreciate the captain getting the happy ending at the end of the episode? Of course it's nice for the main characters and the heroes to get a win in the end and prove that their sacrifices and chosen profession were the right choice for them. That said, I don't think I needed the budding romance between Eureka's deputy Andy, who is now the DA here, and the captain. It really didn't cheapen the episode either, so I'm all right with it because it essentially proved the villain this week was wrong. It proved Avery was wrong that she is not alone and will not be alone. There is also, you know, a very strong and personal relationship between Kennex and the captain that is more than just superior officer and someone under her command. It's a true friendship. And she even said that John is the only one in the precinct that she absolutely trusts. So it was good to see this. But we also already knew she is and never really uh, was as alone as Avery made her feel. Yeah, he got under her skin, maybe made her start questioning herself. But we've known from her interactions with John that there is a real close connection there between them. Not romantic by any means. Oh, yeah. they, are, they are very deep, close friends. And so she may feel alone at times, but she's never really alone. And I think that that came out in the end. And so I don't think we needed the DA to really compliment her and, and, you know, show that there's a possibility for romance there. But at the same time, like I said, I don't think it really cheapened the episode either. So it was okay. Well, at least it wasn't a deep thing. (laughs) Yeah. Because very, I mean, it was, it was quick. It was, you could take it as a compliment. Yeah. Just a compliment gave her some more confidence and made her feel good about herself. And it, it may not even have been him really hitting on her and just saying, hey, you look really nice today, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, and the other thing is, now that you say that, it almost might have been better and good for his development of his character if Kennex was the one that proved that point. Yeah. I mean, not by hitting on her, but by being that friend. Yeah, exactly. Well, in addition to the captain's story, I thought this episode did a nice job of delivering a memorable one-off character, as in the surviving witness to Avery's original crime, who happened to be a medium. Normally, I hate these type of medium characters, thanks to Cindy Lauper's appearance says on boats. I'm all about girls just wanting to have fun, but watching her as an actress is just not. But what ended up being fun with this episode was how the writers of this episode creatively turned the idea of being a medium into an ability you could gain in the future through surgery. However, what started out as cool in my mind quickly became tragic because her house being burnt down left the medium with nothing she could touch to communicate with her parents. But then came old reliable Dorian to save the day because he brought a satisfying smile to my face by giving the girl the remains of her house, which was stored away in evidence, allowing her to speak with her parents again. Nico, did you find this outcome rewarding? And what did you think of this memorable one-off character's story in general? Yeah, Dan, I really like this idea of a psychic or medium being able to open up the unused areas of the brain by a procedure and still with all the technology they have in the future, only some people are actually able to have the ability and it is still sort of a special ability. Yeah, everybody can have the procedure, but it only takes in like 30% of the people. 
I love the addition of the tragic element of the medium going through the trouble of getting this procedure and then the house burning down and her being able to talk to the dead, but not the only one she really wants to speak with. That was a great story. And I'm glad Dorian was able to help her reconnect with her parents in the afterlife by finding the evidence from her family's house fire. That was a nice ending. And it makes me hopeful that this one off may be able to return to help them in a later story arc or even a later season and be one of those one-offs that returns. I like that. I like the idea with this show, like the people they've helped coming back to help them in return. Yeah. I think we're going to see a lot of that. You know, we've talked about that in Person of Interest, and we've always, I've always been a little bit disappointed that we don't get more of that. Yeah. We've had some characters return, but there have been a lot of good supporting characters or people they've saved that we were always like, oh, it'd be great if those guys would come back. And, you know, they've done it to a, a certain extent. I'm really hoping this show, Almost Human, does that a little bit more or, yeah. or maybe not a little bit more, but does it very well when they do it. And this character here, this medium woman, would be a fun one to have come back every once in a while. I agree. I agree. Good, good choice, Fox, not to have Cindy Lauper play <laughs> the role on here, too. Oh, uh, that's so bad. <laughs> she was in season nine again. Did you see that? Got the wedding, right? Yeah, the yeah. wedding. Yeah. Go Bones. Well, finally, in ending this discussion off with some recurring stuff, the episode began to play up an attraction between Cuddix and Stahl. That's something more so than Dorian just giving John a hard time. Because Stahl was somewhat the damsel in distress. Cuddix had to rescue. Cuddix thought they had a bond over football, which he had mistaken for Stahl having an interest in soccer. But John let it go because he ended a rough day with a pretty lady. Nico, do you see the attraction between Cuddix and Stahl as something that works? Can people will eventually be shipping. <laughs> what do you mean eventually? I think people are already shipping these two and probably have been from the pilot. So yeah, I think this works for them. I think they've set it up much like the Beckett and Castle attraction from the very beginning, and it will probably have a similar trajectory to the Peter and Olivia relationship from Fringe, with some false starts, some sci-fi getting in the way, but ultimately love winning out in the end. So I do see this working, and I think it's going to be, I don't know if it'll be as great as Peter and Olivia's love story but you know it, it'll probably be on par with beckett and castle well let me know when you see some kennel fan sites oh god <laughs> uh i hate i hate shipper names <laughs> that's what it's gonna be i have a feeling yeah it's it's gotta be it, kennel or what stenix stenix that sounds like a toy yeah like connects or something yep also, Nico just been following this up for fun. Um, what did you think about the tricks uh, Kenix pulled to save Stahl from the clones by using the holograms to have the captain be in two places at once? And how about Dorian flipping that van when the shootout went down? Pretty cool stuff, huh? Yeah, I like the use of the holograms to trick the clones and the original because for once the cops had the technological upper hand. We've seen so, so often on this show that the bad guys seem to have the upper hand when it comes to technology. And that is just, it's just the hard work of Kenix, Dorian, and their team that end up winning out in the end. Occasionally with Rudy helping out with a tech advantage, but usually the bad guys have the, have that tech advantage. But I like that the cops went out this time with a nice techie trick. As for Dorian flipping that van, I was surprised by it, actually, much like both Stahl and John were when it happened. 
I'm not sure if that fits into the capabilities he has or not. We just don't know his strength yet. So I guess we'll have to let it go for now until we know or they can explain exactly what his lifting and strength limitations are exactly. Because we've talked that there are limitations, and that's something we really like about this character. So I thought it might be a little excessive for him, but I was okay with it because it was cool, but also because they haven't said anything that contradicts it. Well, it also might create a little bit of distrust with him. Like, we don't know everything about him yet. Yeah, agreed. And that leaves the mystery about him and his capabilities intact. And that's fun. That's good because they can always add things or, you know, you could say it's a lazy writing crutch that they haven't given him these limitations yet so that they can just allow him to do whatever they need him to do. But at the same time, I think it's it's okay because, like you said, it leaves that mystery as to what all his capabilities are. And I like that more than... Because we still don't know fully what he did before. Yep. Or why he was shut down. Yep. So this plays into it perfectly. Yeah, it is. It's a cool idea. And with the technology thing, I did like it how there was that idea that they were going to run out of hologram projectors. Yeah. (laughs) That they could only go so far and then they were screwed. So I like that they added that suspense to it. Where it was, yes, they had the upper hand, but it could only go so far. Yep. Good stuff. And the show keeps getting better. Very fun part of Monday night now. Yeah, it really makes for a great night with this and our next show. Oh, it yes, really for does. sure. Okay, that's what we're going to get into. I was setting up a segue to, for us to move into Sleepy Hollow. Okay, the episode entitled The Gollum. While attempting to communicate with Katrina in Purgatory, Ichabod and Henry Parrish unwittingly unleash a new evil. This week's Sleepy Hollowhead Crane looking for answers on the fate of his son. Cause that brought Henry Parrish, the Sin Eater, back onto the show. Now, with John Noble's first appearance as his character, I was kind of disappointed because he got overshadowed by the slave from Ichabod's past that inspired him to begin his battle with the devil. Cause that was needed. I mean, we needed to know that backstory and that be the forefront of that episode. But here, Noble took center stage by basically inserting his character character of Dr. Bishop from Fridge into the world of Sleepy Hollow. Some people might think this is a cop-out to raise the success of a show that really kind of doesn't need anymore at this point. But I just couldn't get enough of Dr. Bishop on Fridge. So seeing a similar character on this show just makes it more fun, I think. Plus, with Henry Parrish, he's added a horror twist to the Dr. Bishop character. With the brilliant way John Noble's able to act out Parrish's ability to feel people's emotions from objects by coming into contact with them. Nico, are you on the same page as me with John Noble returning in this episode and joining the main cast as Henry Parrish and it making the show more fun by giving us an old favorite because of Dr. Bishop with a new horror twist? Yeah, Dan, you know, you would think that John Noble showing up to guest star could cause problems for the show because we did love him so much as Walter that we might have trouble disassociating him from that character and seeing him as the new character Henry Parrish. Our love for Walter could overwhelm the proceedings, but instead John Noble and his new character Henry Parrish fit right into this show. In this week's episode, we found out that Henry isn't just a one-trick pony, as his talents are not exclusive to just being a sin eater, but they extend to sensing sin, and he's also able to provide valuable exposition on the horrible, horrible childhood that Ichabod's and Katrina's son had. But, you know, he wasn't just the one thing. And by rounding him out more, it really made him a a much better character in this episode. And it wasn't that he was bad. Like you said, 
It's just that he got overshadowed yeah. because of what they needed to get across in that first episode. I thought this was a much better second introduction to the character. Still, the coolest ability that he had was his unmasking the librarian with ease. Yeah. And essentially he said, lying is a sin. I can sense a sin a mile away. I love how this character of Henry is just the right mix of Walter from Fringe and something new and supernatural. Just shows the mastery of John Noble in bringing characters to life. Because this is yet another one that it, you can just see he likes playing. It's it's good. It shows why he's necessary to the team. Yeah, absolutely. That lie detector thing's going to help him out a lot. Yeah, I hope we see him as a regular, a series regular in Season 2. I want a scene with him and Dead Cho. <laughs> That'll be fun. It really would be fun. That, that would be great stuff. Got another aspect added to the imaginative brilliance of this show was how Crane was able to emphasize with the Gollum through them sharing a kinship for being there in his place when he could not protect his son. If this is supernatural, they just opened fire on a creature that was this huge, grotesque, and monstrous looking, which is just fine for the setup of that show. But I like how Sleepy Hollow is making its own place within the television horror genre through delivering these sympathetic monsters because villains are antagonists. Because I hope they play this up more as the series continues because it's leading to the show's success. Nika, is this show's knack for making fully developed sympathetic villains out of things like Headless Horsemen? Kind of growing monsters that could be classified as silly in other mediums? What makes us so impressed with this show? Kind of compelling to the large audience, audiences that tune in every week? Absolutely, Dan. That and its ability to continually include a running undercurrent of humor in yeah. every episode. The ability to make fun of itself while still being just ridiculous enough that we love it. That's what makes this show so great. This show has kept its high degree of difficulty tone while never losing sight of the characters that make us come back each week. That is why the show has been so successful. Not to mention what you've just pointed out, that they've done an excellent job of not only creating recurring hero characters that are compelling to watch, but the sympathetic villains that could and would be silly on other shows are done so well that they come across as compelling characters in their own right. I love what these writers have been able to do with this show. It's just amazing that this ridiculous show is so good. Well, I mean, that Gollum thing could have been something out of Power Rangers. And instead, you really felt for the thing. Well, if you remember, last season, the Supernatural went with the Gollum as well. Yeah. And I, I thought it was done very well there as well, but I think uh, I, I probably preferred it here. Well, and he was more, more human-looking on Supernatural. Yeah. It was not something that we would... They, they would shoot at from the get-go. Right. But if they saw this thing, Sam and Dean would shoot at it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So that that was just interesting how they they realized that show was out there, and they're going to take a different look at it. And that's great. They're very, very different shows. Yeah, and absolutely. That, that's, that's a very good thing. Um, and, and the humor, is just, it's outstanding. Ichabod just cracks me up every episode, while being a very compelling, serious character at the same time. Yeah, the mix of those two aspects of his character are perfect. And Tom Misson does an amazing job at doing this character and walking that tightrope of being serious and being somebody that we can take serious, but also peppering in those great one-line jokes and everything I, and not coming across as like a Schwarzenegger, you know? I think he's going to come off as a big actor over the next couple of years. I, I think you're absolutely right. I think un maybe unfortunately for this show, because it may mean that he's getting pulled away from it or pulled towards other projects. And, you know, I mean, I'm sure they have him locked up, but he may decide after a few years that this is 
only a four-year, five-year commitment, which, you know, it's not the end of the world, but <laughs> it's right now it's so good, I want to see it go for a while. Yeah. Well, I think it will. I think we'll get at least, unless they do something really wacky, yeah. I think we'll at least get three seasons. Okay. For the most part, Sleepy Hollow really, as we keep saying here, is almost flawless for its show in its first season. Except for one minor, minor stipulation. And that's Captain Irving's storyline. I like the concept of Irving, like going to the church, doing things to seek the answers to wrap his brain around demons being real. Because really, it's what any sane person would do. We need to see a character doing this to buy into the reality of everything that's going on. But as I said last week, I'm not sure where they're going with his daughter's part and everything. I mean, it is kind of cruel enough that she was already hit by a car to be put in a wheelchair, but having her soul taken as well, it's just, I don't know, I think it's too much. I think it's just too cruel for television. I mean, they're probably going for a plot like where Moloch is trying to break Irving to do something bad. But didn't they already do this with Ted Cho? In addition, I might have been fine if Irving started out as a villain from the beginning. But seeing the guy who once made us all laugh during the Super Bowl about his idea for a 7-Up Show Us Your Can contest, being responsible for causing the apocalypse, is going to be tough for me to watch. Nico, what do you make of all this stuff going on with Captain Irving? Could you have any predictions for the upcoming two-hour finale of the show? Yeah, Dan, I agree. It is one aspect of this show that does not sit well with me. I think they can still pull this out in the end by making the daughter have an interesting storyline or having her somehow become important for the Ichabod and Abby side as well as Moloch's plans for her now. But so far, she seems like an afterthought thrown in to give Captain Irving something to do besides be backup to Ichabod and Abby. I'd have preferred to have Abby's sister and Captain Irving be Team 2 to Abby and Ichabod's Team 1 and have, their own, well. yeah, and have their own stories that intersect with Team 1's and sometimes go off on their own tangents. That would have been how I would have gone and maybe we will still see that sort of stuff but this whole daughter story arc and now Moloch coming after her just doesn't make sense to me yet. It seems like the only plot line that they are taking slowly in this entire series and maybe that is the problem so far that every other plot line is being progressed at warp speed and this one seems even slower by comparison. I'm just hoping our patience or rather my impatience is rewarded in the end with this story arc. Uh, this show has been so good this season They've earned more than enough goodwill for, for me to give them the benefit of the doubt and just keep going with this story off until it does pay off. I saw some of the synopsis for the next three episodes. Okay. And it sounds like that they're going to address this. Okay. So that's a good sign. I just hope it's okay. Because it's so good, I just don't want him to slip at the finish line. Yeah, I know. I, <laughs> I'm just, I'm a little concerned, and at the same time, I'm I'm not really concerned, because, like I said, they have so much goodwill built up that I kind of feel like they're going to know what they're doing. Well, and Alex Kurtzman and Roberto Orson, they know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. They've had their experiences on TV shows. They've also had their experiences on their TV shows going off the rails. So, I think they know what they're doing here to make it work out, um, because so many time and time again, they've proved it with movies and TV shows. So I, I think they'll come through here. Um, and the, you know, the actor support they're getting. I mean, they got John Noble behind the show, who's a very much a stickler about making things sure things are perfect. Because he's not going to do a scene until it's done just right. I think you're in a good place for this show to really be something special. So keep watching it, folks. It's going to get good. And, and don't worry so much yet. Again, we, we have to have concerns to give us something to talk about. But, you know, most of it is very good, except for this really, really minor story. Yeah, it's just the one story arc out of everything they 
done so far this season that hasn't sat well with me. Right. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to talking about some laughs because we go into the sitcom section. And we're going to talk now about a very funny episode of Modern Family that kind of just briefly touched upon the crispy, did kind of full out go into it. Um, and that's the Modern Family episode, The Old Man in the Tree. <laughs> Jay takes Manny out to cut down their own Christmas tree, and Gloria's on edge with Mom in town, but changes her tune when she sees her bonding with Claire. Elsewhere, Mitchell is forced to do last-minute shopping when they didn't get Lily the right gift, and Cameron takes Lily to a charity event where they experience the true meaning of Christmas. My favorite comedic moment from this week's Christmas edition of Modern Family would have to be Phil's trademark trek to Canada, but ended up intersecting with Cam and Mitchell's storyline when they asked him to pick up the puppy pound Lily wanted at the mall. I thought it was Hilarious how Phil's body was stuck in a treadmill walk, and how his effort-filled climb up the broken escalator ended with it being turned back on, sending poor Phil right back down. Also, as a close second on the favorite comedic moment, was Jay and Manny chopping down the Christmas tree. But before I get too carried away with that, I'm going to pass things on to Nico with his favorite comedic moment. Dan, this week's Christmas-themed Modern Family was sort of a letdown for me. While I agree with you that Phil's trek to Canada on the elliptical machine and Jay and Manny trying to cut down a tree were probably the best bits of the episode, the rest was pretty weak sauce for me. My favorite line, however, did come from Phil's trek to Canada when Luke said that he had to make it because he'd never worked work out in the garage it's too drafty and phil said that's why i'm going to canada buddy to avoid the draft <laughs> but ultimately this was just a so-so episode for me it just didn't do it yeah well you know i think it was better than trying to go the dramedy approach i mean there there were they went full-on comedy with this i don't know if the jokes worked with everybody but once again luke and phil made the episode to keep me watching the show so there you go yep that sums that up. And so now we're going to move on to a Big Bang Theory episode that started out with a scenario that I'm not a big fan of, but it ended up surprising me and left me quite enjoyed with this episode. So let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode that really followed after classic Christmas episodes of TV shows entitled The Cooper Extraction. All started with a Big Bang with Sheldon in Texas, the gang gathers to decorate for Christmas, and they contemplate if each would have had a wonderful life had they never met him. All right, I don't normally like when TV shows use the plot line of It's a Wonderful Life for its Christmas episodes, because it's been overdone. But some of the scenarios the Big Bang Theory writers came up with, where the gang imagined life without each other, were actually pretty funny, with my favorite being Howard acting out the plot line of Psycho with his mother if he had never met Sheldon and company. Also, what surprised me about this episode was the hilarious use of st- within the gang's daydreams because he showed up in a fat suit that blew the kazoo at the end of Amy's vision where she sadly was alone. However, what topped it off brilliantly was the end of the episode with Stuart having his own daydream hooking up with Penny if the gang had never met her. I'm not the biggest fan of Stuart or his usual pity party but every character deserves their one. Can this work for me on the laughs? So, Nico, what were your thoughts on this episode of The Big Bang Theory? My favorite comedic moment would have to be Bernadette's flashback to Howard and Raj at dinner and how she probably would have never talked to Howard because she would have thought that Raj and Howard were a couple. This joke has been a running gag throughout the series, and it still makes me laugh every time. I also enjoyed the Skype calls from Sheldon. They were pretty fun as well. This is no way to make new humans. People coming out of people. Some kind of dirty magic show. Good stuff. Well, I liked when he was talking about his sister's lady parts. Yeah. He's like, that was frightening. And he's like, it's not that horrible. That's, That's not, not how they usually look. Yes. Good stuff. 
funny episode. It surprised me how funny it was going to be. Because when they started that off with like, oh, what would life be like if you didn't have Sheldon? I'm like, oh, no, not this again. But then they turned it around. They actually had me laugh. So good chuckles on this one. Episode of Big Bang Third Runners. All right. Yeah, and I think now it's about time we jump into the rundown section. Yes, sir. Sci-Fi's Pope for Mondays, FX. In USA, characters welcome. EMT, we know trauma. And as usual, we're going to kick things off with the Homeland episode, Big Man in Tehran. Brody's loyalty to the mission wavers when he meets a ghost from his past. Meanwhile, Lockhart's confirmation looms, and Saul stares in the proceed between success and failure. We knew that Saul's grand scheme involving Brody, Javadi, and an Iranian coup was never going to go as planned. Homeland schemes never work out exactly how they're plotted, even when they're developed by seemingly smart, capable analysts and agents. With Brody involved, instability and even flat-out anarchy are more likely to happen than not. Armed with that knowledge, I went into this week's episode, Big Man in Tehran, assuming that all hell would break loose sooner rather than later. That more or less came to pass. Yet amid some strong moments for the leading trio of actors, this episode underscored something else we all know. Brody probably will not survive this season. The crux of this episode, the penultimate installment of the third season, is whether or not Brody will turn on his CIA conspirators and whether or not they'll turn on him. It's all very tense and very well done in this episode, so much that I can't help but wish that more of the season had been spent on this concept. It's interesting that Brody's story keeps getting these six days later type time skips in this episode where the audience is left slightly disoriented while big things happen off screen in Brody's life. In particular, this time around, his refusing to be rescued from Iran and his big man in Tehran status could have made for great episodes in and of themselves. It's almost as if the writers had kept Brody away for so long that once they got him back, all this newfound potential for the character came bubbling to the surface. In fact, I wish we had seen some of these episodes during these time skips rather than some of the episodes that led up to the Javadi, Brody, and Saul conspiracy arc. Don't get me wrong, this might not have worked without those Foundation episodes earlier this season, but I think I would have enjoyed these possible Brody and Tehran episodes more. So yeah, things felt rushed in this episode, particularly as we know this is the second to last episode of the season, but it was an intense hour all the same that did manage to keep viewers guessing as to what Brody's real motivations were. I like how the ghost of Abu Nuzir hung over the proceedings, not just in the revelation that his wife is in Tehran too and was being used to vet Brody, but also in the fact that General Akbari and Nazir met in the very office Brody finds himself in where they planned the Marines' attack on his own country. Which brings us to Brody's latest in-office assassination of a high-profile political figure. This time around, his approach was a little less high-tech, a glass ashtray to the head and pillow over the face in place of a remote-controlled heart attack, but yet equally effective. Also, equally over-the-top in that I can't see how Brody can realistically get out of this current jam. Could he just walk out the front door with his current rock star status? Maybe. So where does it go from here? It has always felt as though season three would probably be Brody's swan song and that the show's writers would kill him off at some point. 
There's only one episode left, so does Brody finally buy it now? Will Saul go through with the end Brody directive despite the Marines' completion of his mission in Tehran? Or will Carrie save Brody and the two get another chance at Happily Ever After? Which, let's be honest, is not at all something these two are capable of. It sure seems unlikely that the latter scenario will happen, but then again, two years ago it seemed unlikely that Brody would even make it through season one. So anything's possible in next week's season finale. All right. Another good episode of Homeland. Now we're going to move on to South Park with an interesting, maybe a little bit of a letdown episode after that great trilogy about the console wars, but still not a bad episode. We're going to talk about the episode, The Hobbit. Wendy plays matchmaker by trying to pair one of her gal pals with Butters, only to end up in the counselor's office. Coming off its epic Black Friday trilogy, South Park had a lot to live up to in its season 17 finale. However, The Hobbit turned out to be another solid installment, as the show introduced the homely and overweight Lisa Berger, the crux of this week's main storyline. The episode started out strong, with Wendy suggesting to Lisa that she find herself a confidence boost. This brought about a couple of entertaining scenes with the ever-clueless Butters, who matter-of-factly deem Lisa too fat for him. Of course, Kanye West got the brunt of this week's ridicule, as he resurfaced to prove to everyone that his wife Kim Kardashian was not a hobbit. Not surprisingly, this B-story was packed with pop culture references, most of which were pretty solid. I was especially impressed by what, what had to be a last-minute inclusion of Pope Francis's Time Person of the Year award, a clear VMA stand-in, which amusingly resulted in the Pope correcting Kanye on his Middle Earth trivia. Specifically, it was Kanye's phone bit that stood out as the most repetitive, yet still funny, bit from the episode. Bitch, how you not the hobbit again? As is sometimes the case with South Park, the jokes started out funny, quickly got old, but then came back around. Although Kanye's final scene with the fairy tale book was only mildly enjoyable and was actually pretty annoying. That said, The Hobbit was completely on point with its overarching satire, taking a clear stance against the celebration of female vanity. This was made even more clear by having Wendy as the episode's protagonist. She is, after all, the show's go-to voice of reason, and she played her part well here. Her storyline was very likely a play on the Photoshop time-lapse video that's been making the online rounds in recent weeks. Additionally, in this episode, Wendy was continuously brushed off and closed out by her peers after the Photoshop fad took over. As an outspoken feminist, Wendy's struggle was hard to watch at times as she slowly succumbed to the pressures of men, the media, and ultimately her fellow women. Indeed, I think The Hobbit did a great job in presenting Wendy's plight. In fact, it was probably the strongest aspect of this episode. But given that this is South Park, Matt and Trey put a humorous spin on Wendy's storyline, which made it both relevant and funny. Each time Wendy spiraled into one of her tangents, she was almost always caught by Mr. Mackey at the exact wrong moment. My favorite instance of this was when Wendy tried to explain to Stan that Photoshop merely concealed the student body's imperfections, only to have Mackey come in and scold her for her objective observations. But I think the clincher for this episode was the very last scene, which ended on a decidedly downtrodden note. It was almost heartbreaking to see Wendy photoshop her own glamour picture as she stifled tears. That along with the stark executive producer's title card over Wendy leaving the computer lab in defeat. It was a bold but powerful way to end this episode, let alone the entire season. Matt and Trey really hammered home their rightful aversion to societal arrogance and narcissism, using Wendy as the hopeless but well-meaning mouthpiece. While this final scene was obviously a departure from most South Park endings, it certainly did leave an impression, and for that, I say well done. 
While this episode in no way could live up to the greatness of the console war trilogies in the humor department, the biting social commentary was indeed better in this finale episode. Alright, now we're going to bring Andy back once again for our discussion on this week's Once Upon a Time in Wonderland episode entitled Home. In flashback, we learn about Cyrus's origin story while Alice seeks out the White Rabbit for answers involving his actions in Wonderland. Meanwhile, the Red Queen and Jafar's disdain for one another comes to a head, followed by a series of chaotic events. The insurmountable consequences caused by their showdown will put everyone in danger and lead to a drastic change. So, it, for me, it was kind of hard to kind of w- know what to expect from this means finale because... You know, I've never had that. that the show has only had like 13 episodes in its run and being entered into its eighth episode now. So I didn't know what to expect from this episode, but it was bigger than I expected. And I want to talk about first off the flashback between Alice and Cyrus as well as Cyrus' background. First off, very interesting take that they make on the genie mythology because from everything that I've seen, I've never heard that people, that genies have been, been able to be humans previously. Like, you know, I always thought they were born genies. Okay. What about you? Yeah, you know, that was something new, I think, for me as well. I I didn't think it was something that was outside the realm of what we've seen before, because in the Aladdin movie, Jafar wishes to become a genie and becomes one, and he was human becoming a genie at that point as well. So I knew that that was a possibility, but I had thought genies were naturally mystical beings and so they were born that way or they were created that way or had come about from magic that way and weren't humans originally but in this story it looks like cyrus was indeed a human who was either trapped as a genie or wanted to be a genie and then realized that it was a a a life of a slave and now doesn't want to be a genie so it's interesting and i i'm hoping we'll continue to see more of cyrus's background and his backstory and we'll only get that if this series continues on beyond this first season. But it would be interesting to see how he became, you know, and actually see in a flashback how he became the genie. Yeah, and I think here's the difference between how Jafar did it in the Aladdin movie and how Cyrus could have possibly done it here. In the Aladdin movie, you know, Jafar, which has become that, you know, almost by force, you know, but he's almost forcing the genie to do that. In this case, like, it felt like that, that it felt different for some reason, like, and although he wished for it, uh, right. and, and, uh, but you know, he, who knows, maybe Cyrus did the same thing here, and ma- maybe he wished to become a genius so he could, I don't know, I can see that he maybe was trying to help his mom or something. Yeah, that's always a possibility. And I still like the relation between Alice and Cyrus, and it was nice to see, you know, Alice in uh, her early stages, when, you know, before becoming a BA. Sure. And so yeah, that was pretty nice. And we get to see more of the white rabbit's uh, background. And this goes also into the explanation of why he has been the way he's been. And it's because his family has been trapped by the Red Queen. And, you know, we also get the introduction of Whoopi Goldberg's rabbit. And of course, she was sassy as always. Because that's Whoopi Goldberg to you. Of course. And screw the special effects. Those rabbits were adorable. Yeah, they were actually pretty good. I, I think the White Rabbit has been well done from the very beginning. And to see his family, I thought it was fairly well handled in this episode, both from the actual effects and the actual characterization of the rabbits. Did, we didn't get much from the kids other than, you know, the daddy, you know, when they saved him. But ultimately, Whoopi Goldberg's character, 
surprisingly for me, was actually pretty good. I, I, I enjoyed her. I don't know that I've enjoyed Whoopi Goldberg since maybe since Next Trek? Generation. Uh, Whoopi oh, right. Goldberg. He, Oh, she's a, Star, she's a Star Trek lady. Yeah, but yeah, definitely Sister Act was one of the last films that I really enjoyed her on as well. Well, didn't she go, like, you know, like, after Sister Act 2 started on The View or something? Like, she didn't do that much, I think, after the Sister, Sister Act. Yeah, she was in some stuff. I, I don't actually remember much. I know she was in, like, Karina Karina, which was pretty good. She was in a couple other films, but, like, Sister Act was the last funny thing I can remember her being in. I still like Sister Act 2, and that, and, and you will be able to see your next in Michael Bay's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles uh, with Megan Fox. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. How about that? Yeah, I'm still hesitant about that movie. <laughs> well, who isn't? Right, exactly. But I liked her in in this uh, in this episode, and you know, I, I've been enjoying her on uh, on Glee. Whenever she's been able to appear, I think we would uh, agree with me on that as well. Okay. Um, she, she plays uh, the dean of this uh, big musical program school called Niada. So okay, she's pretty good. Yeah, I liked her character here. I liked the white rabbit's wife she was a healer she was sassy as you said but she was just i think well-rounded and if we continue to see the family which i don't know that we will it would be fun to see her maybe fleshed out a little bit more and we get to see more of her character because i did enjoy it and as i said i was surprised by that but ultimately i don't i I shouldn't have been i think it was a, a good actually a good casting for this character yeah and going over to our last discussion topic, which is the reunion between Alice and Cyrus, but the price that Knave of Heart has to pay. First off, I think I have realized the problem with Emma, uh, with Emma Rigby now. She should have been cast as an, as an ally, as a, as a good character, not, not a villain. I think she's much better at being ally than being a villain. I think that's why I've been having so much problem with her. Yeah, you know, she, she has the look of a, a good guy and she was, working too hard to be the evil Red Queen. And when she could be the Anastasia Anastasia character again, that worked much better for her. Thank you for reminding me of her name. I couldn't come up with it on the spot. But yeah, I think she plays the Anastasia character much better than the Red Queen. And now that she's going to be an ally, and I think we're going to see her and Cyrus and Alice try to figure out how to save the Knave now... I think it's going to be a much better role for her. I think she's going to be something that we'll actually enjoy watching. So I think it's going to be a good move for the show. I think the Knave becoming the genie was a little predictable when he for made me, his was that? What? For, for me, it wasn't. like Because the, the, the second he was gone, I was like, wait a minute. Were they just implying that when he said that end all else is suffering... She saw him as someone that she got, that she was suffering from. Yeah, see, I, they had, they had set it up earlier when, in a flashback a few weeks ago, when Cyrus said that whenever someone had wished for a genie's freedom, it had turned out badly. So I assumed when he made a wish that essentially was going to free Cyrus by ending Alice's suffering, that something bad was going to happen and it, he was going to have to take the place of Cyrus and that was going to be the un, foreseen cost of magic yeah i i just have a 
Because, like, by saying that I, I wish for, uh, for Alice's suffering to end, I, like, if to me it came up as de- them implying that he was some sort of pain to her. See, I think it's a little bit faulty because Cyrus being free definitely ends Alice's suffering, but the knave being imprisoned just adds new suffering to her and it doesn't fulfill his wish. And therefore, I think it is actually sort of a, a, a an error in, in, in a sense in the logic there of the wish. But, you know, wishes are, they always come with a price. And so I guess this is the price that they're going to pay. Insert Rumpel laugh. <laughs> exactly. Now, but overall, this was a really good mid-season finale. And look, regardless of what happens to the show in, uh, you know, after these five last episodes, you know, it's been a good run. I think this is one of the better episodes we've seen in this since the pilot. I thought the pilot was really good and got me sucked into the show. But I think this is one of the better episodes since the pilot. And that's, you know, understandable being the midseason finale. If they can come back strong in three and a half months or three months, whatever it is, and have a really good, strong midseason premiere... I think that this show could end on a very high note. I don't think it's going to have enough momentum to get renewed. Unfortunately, I think this is going to be a one and done for a single season. But you're right. It has had a pretty good run. There have been some issues we've talked ad nauseum about the problems with the CGI. But once you get beyond that, I think the story here has been fairly decent. And it's been worth watching at least. And hopefully it will at least get to end, you know, with a proper finale. This story will get wrapped up and then whatever, ha- you know, whether they get uh, brought into the original series or not, like at least this sh- story would have been, w- will have been uh, wrapped up and so on. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. But guys, Once Upon a Time in Wonderland will return with new episodes starting on March 6, 2014, 87 Central ABC. Yes, we're going to have to wait that long. And you're going to have to wait uh, almost that long for Once Upon a Time as well, which returns on March 9th, 2014 on ABC. All right. Thanks, Andy, for joining me again. All right. Now we're going to move on to another show. Yes, we're going to talk now about the Tomorrow People with the episode at their mid-season finale, entitled Death's Door. <laughs> When John finds himself in a dangerous situation, Stephen finds he is unable to help without revealing his duplicity to Ultra. Also, not satisfied with the answer he discovers about his father's death, Stephen decides to take drastic action to find the truth with help from his fellow Tomorrow people. With the mid-season finale for the Tomorrow people, I thought we were going to get a fast-paced race to save John from Ultra, while Stephen had to come to grips with the possibility that John killed his father. But aside from a frightening display of the Founder's convincible abilities, these issues were rather easily resolved, leading to a much slower-paced episode than expected, with Stephen investigating and then making sure his father's affairs were in order before going on the verge of near death to communicate with his father in limbo. I would have accepted this slower plotline if Stephen would have come back from the dead with his father revealing some surprise revelation about a character, like Stephen's mom, or gave away the founder's master plan, but instead we get the order to find Roger Jameson's body. Because that's it. Maybe it's possible they couldn't get the actor who plays Stephen's father in the episode, but if that's the case, they should have left the job of a big revelation to Dr. Crick, played by Nicholas Young, who was John on the original Tomorrow People. But like his appearance last week, it was wasted on the guys sadly being reduced to cannon fodder, leaving us with nothing that we did not originally know. In my opinion, it's a mid-season finale's job to give us a cliffhanger, which will entice us to come back after a hiatus. But with the way this episode ended, I'm not sure the writers gave the show enough oomph for viewers to return, especially with the show now not coming back until March. Got a new night, Monday, where basically CW shows are forgotten to something like Fox. 
Although, what's going to get me to come back on my DVR, because I'm watching the following live, at 9, 8 central on Monday nights, is the character of Jedekiah. Because his role in this war between the Founder and the Tomorrow People continues to be twisted. Because with his actions in this episode, it seems Jed may be a character who's compelling in the same way as James Spader's Raymond Reddington on the Blacklist, for being a person who originally had good aspirations, but got lost in the role of having to play the bad guy, with the intent of protecting themselves or the people they love from a greater evil, which in this case would be the founder. In my opinion, I think Jed is trying to continue on his brother's plan, which included grooming John to be the leader of the Tomorrow People, got the trigger man who unknowingly would help Roger enter Limbo. But when Roger got stuck, Jed was forced to maintain his position, working at Ultra for survival. Unfortunately, to mask your true intentions from a boss like the founder who could read your minds, Jed had to act out the dirty deeds we've seen him perform so far on this series. A meeting with his lover Morgan was how he dealt with the guilt. Until he was forced to give that up in this episode to most likely protect John and Stephen. Because Jed probably would have ran off with Morgan if there wasn't a bigger reason for him to stay at Ultra. Again, I haven't completely written off the Tomorrow People, including Steven's story, getting as compellingly complicated as Jedekiah's tale, since the door is still open with the discovery that Jed may secretly be their ally, and the Founder's Master's plan is on its way to being revealed. But I just don't think they left the story off at the right place, and the Tomorrow People is going to end up being left hurting. Nico, do you agree with me that this mid-season finale moved kind of slow for our taste, but remained strong in terms of coming up with the theories about Jed's character? Also, do you think the show is going to be left hurting by the way it went off into hiatus? What were your thoughts on the episode in general? For a mid-season finale, I could see why some people were disappointed with this episode. There was no shortage of potentially huge events this week, with the founder using some really cool telekinesis to both fight and interrogate John who is then later freed with the help of Jedekiah and Steven. Meanwhile, Kara and Russell kidnap Morgan to leverage Jedekiah into helping that escape. And the big secret about John killing, or at least attempting to kill Steven's father, was revealed to just about everyone. And all of that was capped off by Steven being brought to, quote, Death's Door, which was the title of the episode. But anybody expecting a game-changing episode would have been disappointed by this hour. Just, it had all this potential and didn't do anything, really. Yes. And we got right back to where we were, except for now John is back with the Tomorrow People instead of in Ultra's hands. For all the stuff going on in this episode, and there was plenty of it, at the end, it didn't feel much like much had changed, like I just said. John was yes. back with the group. The revelation he'd been living a huge lie for years greeted with nothing more than a collective, hey man, not really cool. <laughs> yeah. From everybody. I mean, Russell was like, wait, what? What's going on? Oh, yeah. not cool, man. Yeah. You know, for a second there, it looked like Jedekiah had sort of crossed that Rubicon by brutally murdering Morgan and had become that evil man that we we all thought he was in the beginning. But no, that was immediately revealed to be a hoax in order to fool the founder. And it makes us more and more likely that we were right in thinking that maybe he is a potential ally for the Tomorrow People. And even Steven's status was never really in doubt. Despite the Last Supper-style dinner party at his house, you can't kill the Chosen One in the mid-season finale of the first season yeah. right now that's the biggest weakness of this show since the murder of morgan or the death of steven would have been big watershed moments for the series if they had actually come to pass i know morgan hasn't really been established as a major character but what the murder would have meant for jedekiah would have been shattering but since we've never had any indication that things could change i didn't feel any suspense just assume that each of them would turn out fine in the end 
maybe the Morgan one was a little more suspenseful because we thought maybe he had actually done this and had turned that right. corner. But even that was so short-lived that it didn't really build suspense. There remain reasons for hope with this series, however, because Mark Pellegrino keeps up his end as the MVP of this show, as Dan emphasized in his discussion of this episode. Jedekiah's one character seems to get deeper and more complex with each passing episode. The addition of the founder also is awesome, as he appears to be a very formidable villain that could cause serious problems for everyone, including Jedekiah, as we saw in this episode. But for now, the potential for the Tomorrow People series remains just that, potential and not much else. Although, I have to admit, I do still want to watch each week, so at least they're doing enough to keep me coming back week in, week out. I think they would have been better off to make the mid-season finale last week's episode with John being in Ultra's clutches. Yeah, you know, I think you're right. That would have been a better, you know, jumping-off point for next... This episode would have been a better jumping-off point for the start of the second half, especially since it's going to be a three-month delay. Yeah. Right? It is, like, not coming back till March? Right, yes. And that was recently okay. changed as of this week. Okay. Because the, the promo at the end says it was going to come back when Arrow was going to come back, which was like the 18th of January or something. Right. And so, and that changed. Okay. Because they're going to try a new show out, the 100. Right. I've seen, I've seen the same. I mean, it's, it's teenagers got a sci-fi story. Yeah. The, the Tomorrow People looked a lot better than the 100, in I my agree. opinion. So I don't know if they're doing a thing where they're trying to see if one will fare better than the other one. I think they should stick with Marvel people. That's just me. Yeah, the the 100 has some decent actors in it and some some known actors that, you know, you'll see their face and be like, oh, I remember them, you know, or things like that. But unfortunately, it just when what I saw from the preview at Comic-Con and the trailers out on the Internet, it just I don't see it being a success. Yeah, I, I'm not interested in it. Yeah. Um, so th- this is, you know, unfortunate because really Mark Pellegrino is great on this show. And I'm going to keep watching it for that. I mean, he's up there. I mean, he gives a performance as this villain that I really feel is on par with what Spader's doing with Reddington on, on the blacklist. Uh, it's just this is CW and he's not going to get noticed. Yeah. Um, so that's unfortunate. But yeah. And then the rest of the story it needs work. It could get there. Um, I, I, I have hope for it. Yeah. As I said, there is a ton of potential here. But unfortunately, yeah. at this point, it's still just potential and it's not realizing any of that. Yep. All right. So, yeah, we're going to jump into the third and fourth episode of Mob City. And those are entitled Red Light and His Banana Majesty. Bugsy reveals a plan to transform the city and resorts to violence to prove his power. Meanwhile, the force is determined to apprehend Seagull. Suspicions emerge as Jad Smith struggles to stay safe, and monster Dragna makes his move. Joe receives an unexpected visit. Just a reminder, TNT's Mob City airs two episodes on Wednesday nights. That being said, I'm reviewing each double episode in one review and won't be breaking it down by episode. Mob City continues to feel like something is missing from making this series a real hit, like it is somehow or somewhat empty, while also delivering a handful of scenes that actually really sizzle. 
Overall, I'm liking the format and how the show, well, these first six episodes at least, focus on one case, and that everything we've seen so far has been a direct result of what went down in the first episode. I found that the second set of episodes, Red Light and His Banana Majesty, left me more interested in Parker's overreaching goal of taking down Siegel than I was in our main hero, Joe Teague, and his day-to-day juggling of corruption and justice. I'm also not fully sold on the show's particular portrayals of Cohen and Siegel, but Robert Nepner's Sid Rothman continues to be a standout. The moment when he handed himself over to the cops and then passively aggressively taunted Teague was great. As was the montage in the second episode when he played the violin and made himself a sawed-off shotgun. Likewise, if we're talking about pure set pieces, the merry-go-round shootout at the end of Red Light was really fun, with Red Light being the stronger chapter of the two episodes. These installments directly dealt with Rothman's public restaurant hit and were set up nicely with the flashback which included Simon Pegg's hecky to the night that Siegel rubbed out the FBI informant named Abe Greenberg. Although the show cheated a bit by not having that one eyewitness woman be able to pull Rothman out of the lineup, even teasing us by having Rothman step forward first, Red Light picked up considerably when Parker's mob squad figured out the actual identity and crime connections of the busboy Carl, who claimed to have been attacked in the alleyway. From there, Teague, who was now resigned to take down Siegel so that his ex-wife Jasmine could live her life in peace, made the call to save Carl from a Rothman hit only to find out later that Rothman was, in fact, the shooter and that he might have made a big mistake that could wind up biting him in the ass, especially since Rothman can squeal on Teague. By the second episode, Teague had become marginalized as bigger gangland events took the main stage. Parker arrested Siegel, counting on being allowed enough time to find Rothman, but Siegel's greased palm connections put the entire operation in serious jeopardy. Meanwhile, a rival gangster named Dragna started muscling in on Siegel's gambling turf, causing Cohen to have to step up and handle things in Siegel's absence. Giving Jasmine's story a bit more flair was the introduction of Leslie Shermer, an unstable wacko who insists he cut a deal with Hecky for half the blackmail money. At first, she had no plans of going to Teague for help, and I kind of wish it had stayed that way. She didn't want Teague to risk his life for her or for her to have to owe him anything, and having her solve her own problems would have done a lot for her character. Unfortunately, with Teague having the key to her secret locker, he'll have to somehow circle back into her story in the end. That is, if he can escape Rothman's wrath, as the ending of the episode saw Teague in a pretty dangerous bind. These two episodes played around with the time format more than the previous two, which only used straight flashbacks. Here we were shifted back and forth a bit, and it's possible given this gimmick that that scene we saw of Siegel in the desert trying to sell Lansky's men on Las Vegas happened after Siegel beat the murder rap. We were never really told the identity of the hooded man that they all gunned down in the ditch, but I feel like this is the kind of show that will eventually answer that. As you'd hope from a good show, these two episodes improved on the ones that preceded it. The scope of the show widened as the series now devotes more time to Parker's mission to take down the mob's biggest West Coast players. Robert Nepner, although no stranger to villainous roles, continues to be a standout, while individual scenes and a few exchanges throughout have really sizzled to make this a pretty decent series so far. Alright, now we're going to move into the two-episode mid-season finale of Grimm, entitled Cold-Blooded and 12 Days of Krampus.
While Nick and Hank deal with an urban legend in his sewers, Bernard spawns the attempt on his life. Can Adeline meets with Prince Victor in Europe? Because for the second episode, while Bernard is in Europe looking for Adeline, Nick and Hank deal with a series of missing teenagers tied into an old Western legend of the Krampus. Meanwhile, Monroe asks Juliet for her help, surprising Rosalie for their first Christmas together. But things don't go as he planned. Okay, so if we're being completely honest here, the first half of Grimm's super two-hour mid-season finale was kind of basic and maybe even a little bit boring. But we learned two very important things. One, Nick totally has his badass arm sword thingy that is just lying around in the bookmobile of crazy because he didn't know what it was or how he was supposed to use it until he encountered the monster of this week. Also, it totally reminded me of that Assassin's Creed blade, so awesome. And two, the new princess, a total perv, spying on Adeline and expecting her familiar relationship with the former prince to continue with him. Maybe it was the fact that most of the hype for Grimm's two-hour seasonal send-off focused so heavily on Krampus that it left me so underwhelmed in the first half of the finale, but whatever, because Krampus delivered, and it's not that cold-blooded was bad, just it wasn't anything special. 12 Days of Krampus, the second episode, gave us the sort of excitement and teasing we expect from a show going into a long break, although Grimm's is not going to be all that long. It also featured just a pinch of emotional compromise, which seems to be Grimm's thing this season. Also, zombie superpowered Nick, demented Christmas elf Monroe, and dashing leader of the Resistance, Renard. It was actually rather nice to see the Vienna storyline serve a higher purpose for once than simply reminding us that Adeline is still alive. The new prince, Victor, played by Alexis Denisov of Angel fame, is all about tracking down those responsible for Eric's death. He's also all about skeeving on pregnant Adeline while she admires the probably mark of the beast or something on her tummy. Definitely nothing creepy going on in this situation. By the end of the 12 Days of Krampus episode, Krampus may not have been the bad Santa we necessarily wanted, but he was the one Grimm needed in order to continue its clash of the Vesson and human worlds that's come to increasingly eat up narrative time in a very good way this season. For the second week in a row, though, some unwitting person wreaked havoc on weird old Portland without realizing it, but unlike last week, there was no cure for Krampus's plight. The guy wasn't sick, he was just a Vesson, a very special Vesson that only Vogue's during a few very specific weeks each year, leaving no memory behind for the human half to make sense of later. Arresting Krampus for his, his festive murders was out of the question. I'm glad they didn't just kill him, and rather Nick's decision to turn the now mostly human and totally mind-wiped Krampus over to the Vesson Council was probably the best call, but it's still by no means a neat and clean solution. Poor Krampus Claus ser serving to remind us all that for every awesome Vesson, there's one that it would probably really suck to be. It's kind of like X-Men. For every Cyclops or Storm, there's an Epsilon-level mutant like a dude who mutated into a duck when he hit puberty. Juliet pretty much wasn't in these episodes. Also, Nick's zombie superpowers were pretty handy. Cold-Blooded and 12 Days of Krampus were pretty mellow, all things considered, for being a finale episode. But they were fun. Well, 12 Days of Krampus was fun. Cold-Blooded was pretty boring as hell. But don't worry, because Grimm is back real early this year on January 3rd. Alright, yeah, once again, an okay, not really linked two-part mid-season finale, but yeah. we'll go with it. It was actually just two episodes they put together. The Krampus one was actually pretty good, so all in all, it was a good night of Grimm. Alright, now let's move into the voicemail section this week. A call has been forwarded. For, 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 forwarded to an automatic voice message system. It's not available. To page this person, press 5 now. 
to record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press 1 for more options. In this week's section, we have a voicemail from Wu about Once Upon a Time. My thoughts on the New Neverland are pretty simple. Nothing really happened in this episode until the very end. A lot of this episode was bringing everybody back and bringing everybody back to Storybrooke and the way life was before the curse. Or no, um, before everybody going off to Neverland. I'm sorry. I'll get to that curse thing later. Um... It's just, it was kind of an awkward episode, but again, it was awkward on purpose. I hate the fact that the Blue Fairy went out, but ultimately, and there's my word again, ultimately, I think the reason that they killed the Blue Fairy was so that they could move Tink into her role as the Fairy of, of Magic in this world. I mean, that is the only viable reason that you would ever kill the Blue Fairy off. Um... I liked Hook in this episode. I liked his awkwardness throughout the whole episode. I loved Bellfire pretty much being in the same spot. I loved the shot of Pan in Henry's body at the beginning of the episode. Like, getting off the boat. <laughs> kind of like the a hockey team returning home after winning the Stanley Cup with everybody getting off the boat. Really loved the use of Pan Shadow. Really liked the the things that we didn't see in the pilot. So and Cunningham and them deciding to have Emma Snow discovering more about herself. My favorite thing in this episode, of, of course, was the charming in Snow trying to be good parents to Emma. It's so really awkward because technically they are still the same age, but I really enjoyed them trying to guide Emma as best they could. Especially loved the scene with Charming and Emma at the beach. I thought that really gave them a good solid foundation because we haven't had many Charming and Emma scenes in this series hardly ever. So I thought that was really good. Before I go though, I have to say um, the curse being put into place. If they go through with it and if Pan and Felix actually go through with designing a new curse with no exit strategy, it would be really interesting to see what could take what could take them out of the curse because technically the only person that wasn't affected by the curse was Henry. But now that he's in Pan's body and he, and he doesn't have the heart of the truest believer anymore, technically, how could anybody break the curse? I thought this episode was really good. I'd give it a 4 out of 5. It was pretty much the calm before the storm. It was pr pretty much the lead up to the mid-season finale. I'm using pretty much a lot. I'm sure Andy, Dan, and Nico are probably going to expand on this more. I just wanted to say one more thing. The way this episode was structured, initially, I wasn't on board with this. But I will say this. The way they left it off, I cannot wait to see the episode next week. Whether it be live or on Hulu, I will be watching it for sure. Let's take it back to the guys. Bye-bye. All right, thanks, Wu, for your great comments this week. We look forward to hearing from you and maybe some of our other listeners next week, so we will have some more comments to play in the voicemail section. Just a reminder, if you'd like to leave us a voicemail, you can call 773-809-3363 and give us your thoughts or feedback. Hope to hear from some of you soon. All right, and with that, now that we've wrapped up the voicemail, 
voicemail and kind of our shorter episode this week. We're going to go into our closing, where Nico's probably going to talk to us about an even shorter episode we may be having next week. Yeah, on next week's episode, we continue to cover the 2013 fall TV season with in-depth discussions on Almost Human, Person of Interest, and Psych the Musical episode. And that is actually a new person of interest. It's sort of a bridge episode between the mid-season finale and the mid-season premiere in January. Then we're going to jump into our sitcom section, including How I Met Your Mother. Then we're going to go right into the rundown section with our thoughts on the Homeland season finale and the final two Mob City episodes that Dan will hopefully be caught up for next week. And we'll have a, a good discussion about the entire series in that discussion if we have time and maybe a few more things as well but for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com yes and also with that i advise you guys uh, to check out our spinoff podcast while you wait for the next episode of ata to come out because we've got it's tangent time which is a podcast where michael and will take an entertainment topic from television movies animation comic books whatever gotta talk about it for two hours so check that out for their opinions on a variety of entertainment topics we've also got Across the Airways DC Nation podcast, which basically covers all the imaginative content that DC Comics provides for its fans, including comic books, movies, Brian Q. Miller's Smallville Season 11 comics, got a whole lot more. So if you're into DC Comics and superheroes, check out that show. It's a lot of fun, and that's hosted by Michael and myself. Also, if you're a fan of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which actually had a really rock-solid season finale, you could check out our thoughts on that episode, got all of the episodes, through Andy Babak's Helicarrier podcast, which is hosted by him, got a special guest host he's got, called Zeke, and they cover all the episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. So if you're a fan of that show, check out that podcast. And for those of you who are a fan of the CW's hit TV series, Arrow, you can check out ATA Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast, which is a show hosted by Michael and Wu. They discuss episodes of Arrow in greater detail on a weekly basis. And right now they're doing a recording of the two episodes, guest starring The Flash or Barry Allen. And I will be joining for them for both of those episodes. So if you hear, so if you want to hear what I think of Arrow, up to date, check out Longbow Hunters, the Arrow podcast. Also, if you like, you can contact our podcast in a variety of ways by visiting to our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. There you can email us at acrosstheairways at gmail.com. Again, that's acrosstheairways at gmail.com. And also you can like us on Facebook to stay updated on our podcast episode releases. And follow all the movie and TV news that our ATA core, especially Nico, reports on during the week. And for that same information, you can follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter is Across the Airways. There's no the there. It's just Across the Airways. Or join our circle on Google+. Also, if you want to share your thoughts on any of the shows we cover we will play it on air if you leave us a voicemail okay what number can you call to do that nico 773-809-3363 and if you also have a suggestion of a show you think people should be watching i want to hype it up to them leave us a voicemail about that as well we're really open to anything also, if you would like, you can check out our YouTube channel, which features all sorts of previews, got promos for upcoming episodes of TV shows, got movies coming out this summer, such as X-Men Days of Future Past, Captain America the Winter Soldier, got a whole lot more. So if you're excited about future summer movies, got to check that stuff out, got our YouTube channel. Also, if you don't want to go back through our podcast for all the ways you can contact us, you can download our Podcast Box app. Got with that Podcast Box app, you can listen to our podcast on your iPad or iPhone. And if you have an Android 
or Windows device, you can listen to our show through our Android app, which is available at the Amazon Marketplace. But also, our podcast is an affiliate to the iTunes Store. So if you click the button on our website, located on the right-hand side of our Spotlight section, if you click that button, any of the purchases you make on iTunes for the next three days will help support across the airwaves. So do that if you want to support our show. So once again, with that, for our other ATA podcast hosts, Michael J. Petty, Wu Kim, and Andy Babak, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustic. And until our next episode, we will catch you on the airwaves. See you guys. Have a great week. And we'll be back next week for another Christmas episode. See ya. Rockin' around the Christmas tree at the Christmas party hop. Mistletoe hung where you can see every couple tries to stop. Rockin' around the Christmas tree, let the Christmas spirit ring. Now return to our regularly scheduled program.